Imagine you're at a restaurant and you order your favourite dish and you're really looking forward to this meal. You've got great hopes and expectations for this delicious dinner that you're about to eat. And you wait patiently for 20, 25 minutes and then, and then the waiter brings you something completely different. What do you do? Do you reject what the waiter's bought you and send it back to the kitchen in a huff, disappointed? Or do you go with it? Do you try this unusual new dish uh, that actually you've never seen before? What would you do? Well, today we're looking at what happens when reality doesn't meet our expectations. And this will help us understand why Jesus uh, was welcomed into Jerusalem in an atmosphere of great excitement Uh, People shouting, blessed is the king of Israel. And yet less than a week later, he was nailed to a cross with a sign above his head which read, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. King of Israel, king of the Jews, both mean the same thing. And yet one was a shout of acclamation and the other a death sentence. What happened? What on earth happened? Well, simply put, the Jews were expecting one thing and they got served up another. The reality didn't meet their expectation. And so we're going to be looking at three things this morning, three key things. Expectations, reality and hindsight. So firstly, expectations. Uh, We need to understand the expectations of first century Jews. The Jews of Jesus' day were waiting for God's anointed, the Messiah, a mighty saviour. But what kind of a saviour were they expecting? Well, first century Palestine was occupied and controlled by the Romans. And this was a total affront to Israel. As far as they were concerned, it was another form of slavery. Israel had been slaves in Egypt. They'd been slaves in Babylon, and now they were enslaved in the land that God had given them. Must have felt unbearable. So quite naturally, they were expecting a saviour who would free them, who would liberate them from the tyranny and oppression of the Roman Empire. They were expecting a saviour who would march into Jerusalem, seize the throne, throw out the Romans, and make Israel the marvel and envy of the world. That's the grand narrative. That's the story that was emblazoned into their psyche. That's the meal that they thought was coming. And everything seemed to be lining up. Surely they were on the verge of seeing this great hope, this great expectation become a reality. For a start, there were masses of people heading into Jerusalem for the Passover. The Passover was a feast to celebrate God liberating Israel from slavery in Egypt. What could be more fitting than for God to liberate Israel from Rome at the very time they were celebrating God's power to liberate them from an oppressive enemy? Jewish nationalism would have reached fever pitch at the time of the Passover. Uh, The people would have been desperately, eagerly, expectantly looking to God to change their situation. And onto this scene comes Jesus, the one who had raised Lazarus from the dead. 
You just have to go back one chapter to chapter 11. Uh, We looked at it last week to see how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And this wasn't some kind of CPR, a few chest pumps. Lazarus had been dead for four days. His body had already started to decay. Understandably, people were wildly excited by this. News spread fast. Jesus had raised a man from the dead. Surely this must be the long-awaited Messiah who would raise the nation of Israel from the dead. And then Jesus started making his way down into Jerusalem. This had to be it. Surely this would be the moment that God would save his people. And the crowds rushed out to meet Jesus and they saw that he was riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So it was Passover. Jesus had raised a man from the dead. God's hand was obviously upon him. And he was coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And the crowds were waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna, which means save us. And over and over they're shouting, save us, save us, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. And even Jesus' disciples got caught up in this nationalistic frenzy. They were following the same script as the crowd. You might ask, well, why didn't Jesus tell them what was going to happen? Why didn't he warn them? The answer is he did. But the narrative of God's Messiah coming to crush Israel's enemies uh, was so entrenched in their minds that they just couldn't let go of it. They thought Jesus was going to come and set up an earthly kingdom with the seat of power being in Jerusalem. Matthew's gospel tells us that the disciples were arguing about who would be greatest in this kingdom. The mother of James and John asked Jesus if her sons could have the most important positions in this kingdom. And Peter, we find out later, was going about with a sword. Peter was a fisherman. What on earth was he doing with a sword? So that was the expectation. This warrior king who would crush Israel's enemies. Now the reality. Going back to our meal analogy, Jesus approaching Jerusalem would be like the waiter approaching the table with the eagerly anticipated meal, silver cover over the top, tantalizingly close. You could almost taste it. And then off comes the cover. Oh, that's not what we were expecting. It's not that the waiter had bought the wrong thing. It's that they'd misread the menu. Jesus didn't do what they expected him to do. So we're going to jump forward to the point where Jesus is arrested and put on trial. First, he appears before the Jewish authorities, the the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin. And then he appears before the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate. And what a pathetic figure Jesus must have looked. Bloody and beaten, wearing a crown of thorns and a a mock king's robe, standing before this powerful Roman official. A far cry from the mighty king who had entered Jerusalem early that same week. 
The reason that the crowd shouted for Jesus' crucifixion, probably the same crowd that were shouting Hosanna just a few days before, is that the reality didn't meet their expectations and they were bitterly disappointed and the disciples were utterly devastated. This wasn't supposed to happen, so they thought. But let's see how hindsight changes the landscape. Verse 16 says, At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only after Jesus rose from the dead did the disciples finally get it. They finally realized that everything that they'd witnessed was in line with God's promises in the Bible, uh, the, their Bible, the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament. At last, the penny dropped. Jesus didn't come to save Israel from the Romans. Jesus came to save the whole of humanity, as many as will put their hope and their trust in him. Jesus came to save from sin and death. The saviour that the Jews were expecting was a feeble shadow of the one that God had promised. The crowd's expectation of what Jesus was going to do seemed grandiose to them. They couldn't think of anything better. But actually, it was too trivial, too small, too weak, too limited, too contained. They're expecting chicken nuggets. That's the worst food I can think of. They're expecting chicken nuggets, and they got the most amazing delicious steak but the disciples were only able to see this after the resurrection isn't hindsight a wonderful thing but you know we can't blame the disciples and the crowds for getting the wrong end of the stick Uh, we can't blame them that their expectations were very different from God's reality because we do the same thing we do the same thing you've all heard of generation y That's the generation that was born in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you know, they've done studies to try and figure out why Generation Y is so dissatisfied with life compared to their parents, who are, on the whole, quite satisfied. And the answer seems to be that the reality of their lives doesn't live up to the expectation Uh, This generation, my generation, has been brought up on a diet of you can be anything you want to be. You can do anything you put your mind to. You are uniquely gifted. There's nothing you can't do. Uh, You deserve the very best from life. Now, I don't think that any of us would be opposed to positively affirming our children. It's so important that we do. But for many of my generation, the truth is, uh, the reality doesn't meet this massive expectation that's been built up. And it leads to dissatisfaction, disillusionment, and depression. And a similar thing can happen to us as Christians, because like the crowds on Palm Sunday, so often we misunderstand what God has promised, and we misunderstand what God is doing. And so the reality of our Christian journey, our Christian lives, doesn't measure up to our expectations. But we need to be very careful about constructing a narrative, a story, 
of how our lives are going to pan out and then expecting God to deliver. I think sometimes we're inclined to treat God like a, like a waiter and we're sat there with the menu and we, and we say, okay, I'll have the comfortable home and the fun job. Uh, I have the well-behaved kids, um, the good health and the long life. Thank you. And those become our expectations. And when our reality doesn't meet our expectations, we begin to doubt God. Or worse still, we reject God. But when the reality of what God is doing in our lives doesn't meet our expectations, it's not that God is feeble and unable to deliver. It's that our expectations are feeble. We can be so focused on the material things of life, on having the perfect life, that we completely miss what God is trying to give us. What if our expectations were different? What if we expected God to make himself known to us more and more each day? And so we made the time to pray and read the Bible and hang out with other Christians. In other words, we made the time to invest in our relationship with God. What if we expected God to change and transform us into his likeness? So that uh, as we go through life, we become more and more like Jesus. What if we expected God to use us to bring life and hope to others by sharing our faith, by finding ways to make a positive difference in the world around us? What if we expected our prayers to make a difference to the lives of those that we're praying for? That is assuming, of course, that we are praying for other people. What if we expected God to help us to loosen our grip on material things and focus on our relationship with him and with others? What if we expected God to help us accept the aging process and eventually die well? in the knowledge that we're going to be with him forever. I can't help thinking that if those were our expectations, or even just our aspirations, the reality of our lives might begin to match them. The crowd waved palm branches and welcomed Jesus as their king. But when it uh, became apparent that Jesus wasn't going to do what they hoped for, uh, what they wanted, what they expected... Well, then they rejected Jesus in the strongest possible terms and saw him crucified. What are we expecting Jesus to do in our lives today? I mean, it's all very well us waving palm branches and uh, singing, shouting Hosanna. But are our expectations in line with what God actually wants to do? And if we realize that there's a gulf between uh, our expectations and the reality of what God wants to do in our lives, do we reject God or do we change our expectations? We proclaim Jesus as king, and so we should. But we need to go further than that. We need to allow Jesus to reign in our lives. If we're not willing to put Jesus first then we get stuck with our rather pathetic expectations and aspirations. And we get caught up trying to make them a reality. And that is what our life will revolve around. 
Now, don't hear me wrong. God is concerned about our personal circumstances. God is concerned. But he's far more concerned about our character, who we are and who we're becoming. Jesus said, strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. On Palm Sunday, we welcome Jesus as king. It's also uh, fitting for us to think about what it looks like to have Jesus reign in our lives. And we remember above all that in God's economy, the reality of what Jesus brings always outshines our expectations. But sometimes, like the disciples, we can only see that with hindsight. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we remember today that the crowds welcomed you as king. But when you didn't do what they thought you should be doing, they had you crucified. And Father, we repent of the times when we come up with a little narrative of how our life is going to be. And we just expect you to deliver and ignore actually what you might be trying to do in us and through us. And we pray, Father, that we uh, will be filled with your spirit and that we will live for you. We will allow you to reign in our hearts and in our lives and in our families. We will give you uh, the central position in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.